iSelect Fund is not soliciting investment or providing investment advice in any way whatsoever. This presentation is general industry research based on publicly available information. iSelect is a venture capital firm in St. Louis focused on companies in food, agriculture, and health. iSelect invests at the forefront of innovation, seeking emerging problems, solutions, and technologies. iSelect uses these deep dive presentations not only as a way to better engage with and understand new science and technology, but also engage with the experts and entrepreneurs who drive and change innovation in their respective fields. Good morning, everyone. Um, welcome to iSelect's Deep Dive webinar series. Uh, my name is David Yoakum. I'm a principal here on iSelect's investment team, and I'm excited to welcome you to our discussion today. Um, one theme that we've been researching um, is climate smart agriculture and specifically carbon measurement reporting and verification MRV in agriculture. Um, in recent years, agriculture's role in the production of greenhouse gases, principally nitrous oxide, methane, uh, and carbon dioxide, which today we will discuss largely as carbon dioxide equivalent, um, has come under significant attention as a part of the global climate challenge. However, in the same token, greater attention is being paid to the agricultural methods and solutions that not only can significantly reduce emissions, but in fact sequester them principally in biological sources. Uh, for agricultural practice changes to occur, we do need systems that create both incentives and trust for farmers, uh, purchasers of their products, and purchasers of the carbon credits derived from their work and their efforts. Measurement, reporting, and verification protocols are central to making this all come together. Um, to kick things off today, we're going to start off with some introductions from our speakers, then we're going to move into some sort of core trends that are helping define why we're having the conversation that we're having today. Then we're going to speak about some key issues, um, both in the implementation of, of carbon projects, technologies that are being deployed, um, the way that those look across rangeland versus cropland, and then how farmers are playing a role in this and some of the opportunities they face, as well as some of the challenges. Um, so with that, I'd love if we could start off with some introductions. If we could start off with Debbie, uh, then go with Lars, Kevin, and Mitchell. That'd be fantastic. Thanks, David. I'm Debbie Reed, the Executive Director of the Ecosystem Service Market Consortium um, and the Ecosystem Service Market Research Consortium, our research arm. And we're a nonprofit working um, and operating the first national market program for supply chain accounting and reporting for companies with agriculture in their supply chain. Awesome. Thank you, Debbie. Lars? Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Lars Deard. I'm the CEO of Earth Optics. Earth Optics is a soil mapping company with an emphasis on the on mapping. So we deploy technologies like proximal sensors and satellite data to dramatically increase the power of a traditional soil sample, allowing us to take far fewer soil samples for mapping just about anything you want, including carbon. So we've been been thrilled to be participating in carbon measurement uh, across grass and rangeland and, and row crop projects now for for nearly two years. Awesome. Thanks, Lars. Kevin. Morning, everybody. So I'm the Carbon and Sustainability uh, Product Manager at Vents, helping set up our insetting and offsetting programs. Uh, Vents is a virtual fencing technology company uh, that uses stimuli to help do rotational grazing at scale without the need for physical fencing and really unlocking those possibilities. Uh, yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Kevin. And, and last but not least, Mitch. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Mitch Ahora. I'm a seventh generation farmer from Southeast Iowa. Um, my family farm is mostly corn, soybeans, um, but we've been uh, deep into this space for a long time. Started no-tilling in 1978 and using cover crops in 2013. Uh, so really seeing these things and, and a big believer. I started Continuum Ag and uh, we've now expanded that company, really helping farmers with the how-to of Regen Ag. So um, we've built the topsoil tool, to help farmers manage and uh, track their soil health data, integrating in technologies like are represented here today and in helping farmers to successfully implement regenerative ag systems. And then as a bonus outcome of successfully implementing regen ag, uh, hopefully there's a, a bunch of carbon sequestration and, and lower uh, carbon intensity of our crops that we're producing. Excited to dig further into that here today. Awesome. Well, thanks to all our speakers. We're really excited to hear all your perspectives and in sort of putting this panel together. We wanted to make sure we got a diverse set of perspectives from anybody from, from implementing carbon programs to participating in them to building the technologies and the solutions that help enable uh, the, the future that these programs are, are, are promising. And so really excited to hear everybody's perspectives. 
Um, just to, to jump in, I'm going to spend a few minutes here just sort of setting the stage for the, for the remainder of the discussion, um, bring us up to speed on some, on some definitions, some recent trends, and sort of how to sort of think about how carbon MRV is being, being implemented in agriculture and why that matters. So uh, for anybody who might be new to even agriculture as an industry, um, in, the, in the past five to 10 years in particular, um, there, though estimates vary, vary um, agriculture has represented a significant contribution to global greenhouse gas emissions. These are on the left statistics around the US GHG emissions. Um, and I, I initially, I, I just wanna create a distinction here. We talk about carbon in terms of GHGs, they'll sort of be used interchangeably today, but functionally we're talking about carbon dioxide equivalent because a lot of these emissions aren't specifically carbon dioxide. They're in the form of nitrous oxide uh, and methane in, in particular. Um, but needless to say, the EPA estimates that the U.S. emissions, um, approximately 11% came uh, from agriculture and the leading sources being from enteric fermentation, manure management, and from, from cropland soils. And so this, is, this has become a, a significant area of focus and criticism for the industry, but also an opportunity to say, where are ways in which we can get better? And also agriculture as a biological system, how can it serve as part of the solution going forward um, as, a, as opposed to being seen as part of the problem? And so that's, that's where thinking about agriculture as a, as a carbon sink comes in. Um, in fact, global soils have um, have about 3.1 times the carbon storage capacity of the atmosphere, which is dwarfed only by the storage capacity um, of the ocean. Um, and, and biologically, we're typically discussing the opportunity to create soil and crop systems that are functionally less disturbed and more capable of storing soil organic carbon at higher rates for longer periods of time at a greater relate, rate than their release back into the atmosphere. And so this serves largely as a function of the relationship that soil organic matter has with permanent root systems um, to store significant carbon quantities over the course of time. I'd be remiss not to mention that um, obviously inorganic carbon plays a role in terms of uh, storage in soil. Um, and, and there are companies that are working on technologies called such as um, enhanced weathering um, as a way of reintroducing mineral um, minerals to soil um, to sequester carbon in a much longer format. Eventually it would end up in the ocean, but as a, as a, as a uh, agronomic input. Um, but just putting these two slides in context, the, the main takeaway is to say agriculture today has a significant, uh, is a sig significant contributor to GHG emissions, but in the same token is a part of a biological system that when treated correctly um, and when processed correctly has an opportunity to also store carbon in a significant way, as well as reducing emissions from the current practices that we take on currently. Um, so you might be wondering, what some of those practices look like and what those things are that we can do. Um, so at the simplest level, there's really two things the industry can do um, in, in terms of building a climate-friendly and resilient food system. One is, is reduce emissions in food production, and the other is sequester emissions via food production. So how can agriculture help do both of these things? Well, there's a number of agricultural practices which under the, the recent branding, which the USDA would call climate smart, other circles might call this regenerative, others might call this sustainable, but tools like agroforestry, um, cover cropping and no-till practices can help improve carbon stocks in soil and in plants while reducing soil disturbance that would release carbon back into the atmosphere. Um, tools like biochar can be used uh, as an extremely beneficial soil amendment um, that has a very long uh, carbon permanence in the soil, meaning that it doesn't break down and release into the atmosphere uh, rapidly. Um, rotational grazing can help improve the productivity of grassland ecosystems and their ability uh, to store soil organic, organic carbon, and the list goes on with a number of others who, who are here. Um, and fortunately, for many developers and adopters of these technologies, the USDA, as you can see on the bottom right here, um, recently announced 70 projects will be a recipient of $2.8 billion for the adoption, implementation, and incentivization of climate smart agricultural practices. So we're we're kind of at the beachhead of this really exciting opportunity to take a lot of these tools that, I mean, I think, I think Mitch will speak to this a little bit later, but tools that have been used for a long time. Um, but we're at this time now where there's, there's a momentum around, around this challenge, um, particularly this, this GHG emissions challenge, um, in addition to some of the maturity in terms of the ways in which we can, we can measure and manage um, some of these efforts in order to help deliver value both to farmers, but also societal benefit in terms of the reduction of GHG emissions and also producing a more resilient food system overall. Um, I'll, I'm gonna pause here to see if there's any comments from the, from the speakers at this point before I, before I jump into the next slide. 
in case I missed anything. All right. Um, so before we move into sort of talking more about carbon markets, carbon credits, um, carbon programs that farmers might be participating in, there are some core concepts that are really important to understand um, in terms of you know, how we functionally make all these things work together. And so Debbie, before we move into some of the work more specifically around what you guys are doing with ESMC, I think it would be really awesome if you could help the, the audience understand some of the nuances in terms of how carbon gets offsetted or insetted in a supply chain and maybe creating a distinction between what an offset is, an inset is, and what you would describe as a scope three supply chain intervention. Can you speak to some of those, to those, to those three and sort of why they matter? Yep, sure. Um, thanks for that. Uh, so I'll start maybe with the middle, right? With scope one through three emissions. For any country or any company that has to do a greenhouse gas inventory, they have to look at their direct emissions and what they are. That's scope one. They're indirect coming from energy. That's scope two. And then they're indirect from their supply chain, which is scope three. And that will help elucidate offsets, insets, and then supply chain emission reduction. So starting with the offsets, and I've been working in this industry since the offset yeah. market started in the 90s, offsets are um, a different beast and they are a way to create emission reductions more cheaply than a company can do within their own walls. Carbon offsets um, are different from insets and different from supply chain emissions several ways. Jurisdictionally, Number one, they can come from anywhere. They, an, an offset that a company purchases in the United States can come from China, for instance, or anywhere in the United States, anywhere in the world. Two, sectorally, they can cross boundaries. So a oil and gas company or Microsoft can buy an offset from a different sector, for instance, the agricultural sector. Number three, offsets, create an emission reduction, but they also allow emissions to increase elsewhere. So they do not ever get you to net zero. At best, they just keep you level. So that's the definition of an offset. They can only be utilized to account for changes in the company's scope one emissions. They can't be utilized in scope two or scope three. Insets, the definition of an inset is an offset that occurs within a company's supply chain. So it's an offset, meaning it still allows an emission to increase elsewhere. It can cross jurisdictional boundaries, but it has to be within the supply chain of an organization. So it doesn't cross sectoral boundaries. Um, a supply chain emission reduction or emission factor impact unit is different because it is not an offset. It is an absolute increase in soil carbon or absolute reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. It does not allow an emission um, to occur elsewhere. So that is a huge difference between the first two. And it does not cross jurisdictional or sectoral boundaries. So uh, supply chain emission reductions have to occur where a company actually sources a commodity. Mm -hmm and they have to be within um, their supply chain. So for a food and beverage sector, it has to occur within an agricultural supply chain, for instance, or somewhere else they source products. So, but there are three different market mechanisms with three different market opportunities and ways of being quantified, uh, monitored and verified. Right, thank you. Well, Debbie, that was a really, uh... Obviously, you've, you've spoken a lot about this over the last <laughs> however many years. Um, the uh, In terms of just going back to one point you made around the offsets versus the insets, I mean, the ins it sounds like, and, and from what I've read and what you've described here, is that the insets and the supply chain interventions are really a much clearer path in terms of getting to an actual net zero goal as opposed to, to the offset programs, which, which, right, you mentioned are cheaper but perhaps not quite as effective as actually getting to the goal that we're looking at here. I think that's exactly right. Um, it, insets, so we started an organization, our market program, with the intent of creating offsets and insets. And our companies, the buyer said, we don't need offsets, we don't need insets, we need supply chain emission reductions. <laughs> because if you're following SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative, or you have a commitment that's SBTI, you cannot use offsets 
or insets until you have achieved net neutrality in your mm -hmm. carbon, um, in, in your emissions profile, and then you can use offsets, awesome. right? So yeah. they cannot use them typically for the first 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Kevin, I saw you nodding. I don't know if you wanted to add anything. I just, I saw you. Yeah, no, that was probably the most cogent uh, explanation of the different levels <laughs> that I've ever heard. So I was just in rapid agreement. Awesome. Thanks, Debbie. I, I, the, the one last just definition that I would want to throw in the mix here, just particularly since we're talking about agricultural systems that are functionally biological systems, um, is this is this concept of, of permanence um, and thinking about how long emissions last for in terms of how they're sequestered, how long they're sequestered for, which also comes into nuance of the types of emissions that are either prevented or offset um, in some way. Uh, I think we'll have, we'll have a little bit more of an in-depth discussion around that, but it's it's a core consideration in terms of thinking about what the long-term impacts of these types of offsets or insets could be. Um, so moving into sort of the, the core definition around some of, some of the conversation that we're we're already having and that speaks to sort of the title of this um, this deep dive is it really in order to accomplish all of this, which is to really say we want to build a food system that is regenerative, that is uh, that is climate positive, uh, there's also climate resilient. Um, we need to know that the work that is being done is in fact being done and that it's working. Um, and so that's where an effective measurement reporting and verification program comes in. Just to give the definition for anybody who may be new to this concept, measurement reporting and verification refers to the multi-step process to measure the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are reduced by a specific mitigation activity. So such as reducing emissions from deforestation or forest degradation over a period of time and to report these findings to an accredited third party. And so we'll, we'll, we'll explore more what that actually looks like in a program who the real stakeholders are there. But this third party then verifies the report so that the results can be certified into carbon credits, which then end up you know, being used to pay people who have done the good work to improve either the sequestration of a project or um, reduce the emissions um, inherent to a project. Um, and so uh, with, with that in mind, the, the sort of goals of an MRV program are really to understand sort of where we are today, create incentives for, for the production and purchase of high quality carbon credits, and then build trust in a system that all stakeholders believe the system is in fact working. And that can be the power of a, of a, of a well put together MRV program uh, and system. So with that in mind, um, MRV sort of comes to life through some of these carbon programs in marketplaces, such as those implemented by, by Debbie and her team at ESMC. So Debbie, I'm, I'm wondering if you can just give us a little bit more context for, for what ESMC does and how your carbon programs work and, and really who, you know, I, I've been doing some, some background research, understanding all the key stakeholders that are involved in this decision-making process to make this whole thing work. How, how do they all sort of come together um, for somebody who may not have any exposure to this type of marketplace or this type of program? Yeah, it's a good question. And we are different. We are very unique in that we are nonprofit and we are a public-private partnership and a member-based organization. So our members, we have 80 members across the ag supply chain and value chain that represent buyers, so corporations across the ag supply chain who have taken on commitments and need to account for their mission reductions. We have technology companies, measurement quantification companies. Um, we have agricultural groups and individual producers that participate um, and land grant universities, soil scientists, researchers, et cetera, right? So we all collaborated in building our program and our platform to meet the needs of companies who have taken on commitments to reduce their, not just greenhouse gas emissions, but we also generate water quality, water quantity, and um, starting to generate biodiversity goals because companies are taking on commitments to do so. How we operate is we take on, ESMC has built like an MRV platform that is all digitized so that our entire process, we're finalizing this now, is digitized from start to end. Um, and we take on the role of developing the protocols and getting them validated. We uh, work with partners who actually do producer on outreach, uh, technical advice for practice changes, and then enroll partners. Uh, we have partners we work with, such as Earth Optics, that do soil sampling 
for us to meet our program needs. And then we work on internally the quantification of the credits. Uh, the credits are verified with Sustain Certain Gold Standard who are global certification and verification bodies. Then we sell to buyers and pay producers. How we have set up that um, system is probably different and unique as well. But um, the point is, is that it's really a collective enabling environment because what we observed is that individual companies who have to do accounting and reporting in scope three, if they needed to do it themselves and invest in all the tools and technologies would be a waste of resources, number <laughs> one. Number two, it would take us all a lot longer to develop that. Right. Um, and we would not be able to scale the outcomes in the timeframes that we need um, to actually achieve what we need to achieve. Gotcha. And that's, I mean, there, there's so, there's so much in there. Um, I, I think one of the things that on the surface, when you read through sort of how these different types of programs are structured, and if anybody who's curious to actually read a side-by-side -side comparison of a lot of the different programs that are available, that's source two in this PDF that'll be distributed following this conversation today has a really helpful breakdown of a lot of those different types of programs. So I think when you look at sort of the flow chart, it makes sense, right? The farmer's taking on new practices, you're helping sort of coordinate, galvanize this effort around those who are, are verifying partners like Earth Optics who are helping helping to measure, um, the registries who are helping sort of basically list out the, the credits that are being exchanged. Can you, can you explain a, a little bit about the, the two that I always find the most hazy in terms of understanding from like a layman's perspective are the verifiers and the registries. Like what, how, how would you explain what those two parties do in terms of this whole system? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, the way carbon offset and inset markets work is a little bit different from how we work. So I'll explain it from that perspective, yeah. right? So um, the way our program, and we, were ju we just received validation and verification by Sustain Certain Gold Standard in August. What that means is they validated our program. That is equivalent to having your protocol approved in an offset market, right? right. But they looked at our entire program and how we carry it out to ensure that we're quantifying appropriately, we're collecting data and tracking it appropriately, we're monitoring yeah. appropriately before we even get to the verification process, right? So SustainCert is a certification body that certifies that our accounting, our reporting, our data collection, quantification meets all of the rigor levels of certainty and uncertainty required for companies to then say, yes, this is a valid um, report claim that I can make to show that interventions a company is taking within their supply chain are accurate um, and are credibly reported. So it's a little bit different than an offset registry. The other thing is that um, the reason we work with SustainCert and Gold Standard is that they work um, on not only scope three supply chain reporting for different sectors, but they also track impacts and quantification for companies to help meet their commitments toward the UN Sustainable Development Goals 2030, right? Mm -hmm. So it accounts for right. land use, water use, impacts, you know, labor, lots of different things. Um, so that is a benefit to the, our program, right? So we're doing the accounting and the reporting for companies in their supply chain reporting to meet their SBTI commitments, et cetera, but also helping them to quantify what they're doing to meet UND um, Sustainable Development Goals for 2030. Um, in terms of a registry, it doesn't work quite the same either, right? So uh, SustainCert validated our program and then they verify every project and we have created a digital platform to help them come in, look at all our data, how it is stored, how we do QA, QC. And then at the end of that, they will verify that, yes, our claims are material, materially accurate and ver verified and that they meet levels of uncertainty. In the Sustain Cert program that we are in, it's called, they have two different programs. Yeah. Our level of accuracy allows multiple companies to actually share the emission factors generated from our program. That means we've let, met enough level of accuracy that they don't think we're propagating error across the system. Right, again. right. So if, for instance, we're working with General Mills and generating scope three emission factors for wheat, 
if they in fact work with Cargill or ADM on the wheat, right, and they get it from them, they can all share that emission factor across their um, supply chain, whoever actually builds or buys and sells that product. It could be ADM, General Mills, and possibly even McDonald's, for instance. Right. They can share the emission factors. It's Some people think it's double counting. It's not. It is actually different in scope three. So SustainCert has a um, program, a software platform that will actually track that across the supply chain. And we have partnered with them to allow two things, to allow different buyers to co-invest so that reduces how much each buyer pays for that. And then we create ongoing dividends to producers. So each time a emission factor for a commodity is resold mm -hmm. in that supply chain, the producer gets an additional dividend for it. Um, that is basically how it's different. It's not like secondary or tertiary markets that operate in the offset sector, but it is probably analogous. Yeah, yeah, that's a really, really, really helpful comparison. I guess the one the one thing I would I would think might be helpful from a uh, a clarity perspective um, that I, that I still find is sometimes kind of hard to understand unless you talk to experts in the space is like in terms of the actual can you give it a concrete example of a verification that would occur or some a way in which you a practice or a project would in fact be verified and sort of how that how that works briefly. Yes. Yeah, so um, if we if you look at the um, the screenshot on the left, if you will. So once we have done everything, the producers enrolled, they've undertaken a practice change. Um, they've uh, included all of the data in our MRV platform, if you will. It is all tracked yeah. and captured in our platform. We then send the data to be modeled, whether it's to a carbon modeler and greenhouse gas modeler or to the water modeler or both in many instances that comes back. We then submit that package of data to uh, sustain cert for verification. What they will do is they literally have electronic lines of sight into the MRV platform to look at our QA, our QC processes. Is the data we said this is based on in that platform? Yeah. Um, if necessary, if there's anything missing, they can flag it for us. Um, if they want to call a producer and find out, did you do this practice, right? They can do that. But it is intended to be digitized yep. and much more um, less burdensome, if you will, than those verification processes yeah. in the past. So they look at everything they need to, to ensure that the process we said we were following is a process we followed. All of the data is there to show the accuracy of the claims that we can then sell. Super helpful. Thank you, Debbie. Um, so ho hopefully this gives everybody some, some context for all the stakeholders that are involved in these programs. Obviously some of the nuance of the SMC program itself, um, but in terms of how we get, how we get from a farmer taking on a practice change to a functional credit of some kind in the form of a of an offset and inset or a um or a a, a scope three supply chain intervention. Um, obviously, within the scope of MRV, one of the important components um, is is measurement. Um, and the measurement field has evolved a lot in the last um, five to six, six years. Since I, ever since I've been on the iSelect team, there's it's been a, there's been a, a constant evolution in terms of the tools that are available for doing measurement. And we're having worked closely with, with Earth Optics. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm discussing with investors sort of how this breaks down in terms of how we measure carbon in agriculture, I break it down into sort of three buckets to try and make it as simple as possible. There's obviously nuance within this. So I don't want to oversimplify this, but I find it is a helpful way to think about it. Is there basically there is direct sampling, i.e., we take a we take a soil sample and we verify components about that through dry combustion or other technologies to verify attributes of that soil. We have remote sensing from really far away, like a satellite image. Um, it tells us where we can basically use machine learning um, to understand attributes about soil at sort of the surface level based off of, of satellite imagery or from hyperspectral imagery. And then we have remote sensing that gives us a much closer look at what's happening at the soil. And that's either via technologies that are able to penetrate the earth and gap capture information below the surface or tools like, for example, like a yardstick who uses spectroscopy in terms of capturing information below the surface in a sample point to reduce the number of soil samples that need to be taken. 
But, but overall, there's two goals. We want to measure with great accuracy, and we want to measure with low cost, high efficiency, and a high level of automation so that the amount of work that's going into capturing this information is as minimized as much as possible and is democratized as much as possible. So now is a great time to sort of bring Lars into the conversation. Lars, can you give us a little bit of context for what you guys are doing at Earth Optics and sort of the, the problem you guys solve in terms of measuring carbon stocks in agriculture? And the only other thing I would add on to that is Earth Optics does a certain level of data capture, but you guys combine with data from a lot of other sources, including all the data sources that are listed here on this on this chart today. So maybe just tell us a little bit about, again, just what you guys are doing and how it ties into the other technologies that are, that are currently being deployed to understand carbon in agriculture. No, David, thank you so much. That's, <clears throat> that's a great setup. So at Earth Optics, we're kind of focused on the, how do we solve the very general problem of being able to quantify both baseline soil carbon, but also changes in soil carbon. And just to put in perspective what a challenging problem this is in general and why it's been such a costly and kind of sticking point for a lot of these programs, is if you take an acre foot of soil, it weighs in general about 2000 tons, right? Uh, and typical soil carbon concentrations in the soil for a Midwestern farm could vary from say two to 5%, where five is probably historically high. It might've been, you know, natural prairie level soil carbon concentration. Many farms these days are somewhere between, you know, one and three. Um, with the practice changes we've been talking about and referring to in terms of, uh, cover cropping or low-till or no-till or even rotational grazing or adding in, you know, prescribed burns and things like that for ranches, you're typically in general, rule of thumb, going to be looking to get a, a one ton, maybe in the most best case scenario, two ton uh, CO2 equivalent per year increase in the soil carbon, mostly in that top one foot of soil. Um, remember I said CO2 equivalent, which is about a third of a, a third of a ton. So let's get back to that 2000, uh, 2000 ton acre foot of soil. So even over a 10 year period, if you're looking to go after maybe 10, 20 tons of CO2 increase over a 10 year period, you're still representing about a one part and a thousand change of carbon concentration inside that 2000 acre, uh, 2000 ton acre foot of soil. This is a very small, very small amount, right? So in order to actually quantify that change, you need to take historically a lot of soil samples. And I'm, in general, the type of projects that uh, that Debbie works with and that that we make measurements for, if you wanted to truly quantify that change accurately and confidently, you'd be taking many, many samples per acre. Well, that would be so ridiculously expensive. In general, it costs about fifteen to $20 just to collect a soil sample and have it tested in a laboratory for uh, usually through uh, dry combustion to determine the amount of carbon in it. And so that would be about you know five times more value and or cost in the value of the carbon you're accumulating in the soil today anyway. So it's just it's not economical. That's not what's happened. And so folks have been looking for you know combining practice-based models and other ways of combining measurement with uh, models to still get a good estimate of and good verification whether soil carbon is increasing or not. Um, and what we really wanted to do is, hey, how can we set the bar for accuracy still incredibly high, trying to actually directly detect a change in soil carbon on you know five-year type of basis, but get the cost down so it's economical. Um, and so we focus on technology development. David alluded to it. We basically use everything that you've listed here in order to in order to achieve that goal. And so uh, we're using in situ in situ. Um, Sensors like Crystal Labs to reduce the number of samples we need to send to a lab. We use ground penetrating radar and electromagnetic conduction. We've just added gamma ray detection. We're testing on a number of our rigs this uh, this fall, and we also combine it with high resolution lidar based elevation data sets and uh, hydrologic modeling and, and satellite data as well. And so the whole goal in the fairly practical approach we've taken is how do we not eliminate the sample? That is the gold standard for how you directly try to quantify changes in soil carbon. But how can we dramatically reduce the number of those samples you need? particularly on a per acre basis to achieve that, that you know, truly important goal of being able to quantify carbon changes in the soil on annual or multi-annual timescales. So it's a challenging problem. It's one we think we're really excited that we've made a lot of progress on, um, but it really is, I think, a, a, key, a key piece in the success of all these programs because without the believability and that quantified uh, nature of change in soil carbon, uh, we really think it's gonna be an uphill battle to get some of these programs to really take hold within a larger portion of the public uh, and, and companies that wanna participate with them. There's a lot of ways to sequester carbon. We think soil is one of the most important, but it'll kind of always remain that, you know, uh, that 
that kind of, uh, what is it, the ugly stepchild until we can really <laughs> demonstrate strongly that uh, we measure these changes, these changes are real. Um, so yeah, I think that's a kind of quick background on, on what we do and how it relates to the this ecosystem. Thanks, Lars. I, Debbie, I don't know if you have a perspective here, but I, I, given given the amount of uh, experience you have in the field and some of the, just the way in which all these really powerful data sets are starting to come together, how how has that made these types of programs easier to implement, like lower cost to implement, less cumbersome for people to be participating in? What what role does just improving the overall measurement process and in doing the kind of work that Lars and their team are doing do to sort of change the paradigm of how people might participate in a program like this or how effective it might be? Yeah, so it, it's incredibly important that there are organizations who understand the power of technology and ground truthing those technologies everywhere that they are actually operating and utilizing the technology. And so we, when we started, right, four years ago doing soil sampling, we were doing 60 centimeter, three inch getting soil carbon probes, <laughs> right, at a high density. And it's incredibly expensive. It's not sustainable, but that's what we had, right? Um, so we are really excited to see groups like Earth Optics doing the due diligence, understanding the variability and how you account for that variability in a way that will actually meet the validation and verification requirements of a market-based program, right? So to me, it's incredibly exciting. Um, and that is one of the reasons we're working with Earth Optics, right? We cannot sustain the level of cost in soil sampling that we've seen in the past. And I'll add one more thing. The highest risk to our entire program, getting projects started and finished to date remains soil sampling. There are human errors, there are technology errors, there's the need to get the data in a timely fashion, on time, get it into the hands of the modelers, et cetera. So technologies that will make it more accurate and reduce that time and the human and other resource elements and risk to our program and others are the only way we are going to accommodate the needs of market-based programs and begin to make a difference in terms of climate change impacts. Well said, Debbie. Um, before we move on from the slide, uh, Mitch, I, I just would be curious to get your perspective both as a farmer, but also as someone who runs Continuum Ag, yeah. how you might interface with these new technologies that are coming online ultimately to help farmers make decisions that allow them to have healthier soil health, which you guys have been doing for, for the last you know 50 years and also yeah. that you're helping farmers do going forward. How does that all, how those pieces sort of fit together? Yeah. I mean, for, for me, I'm in a unique spot that with Continuum Ag, you know, we're helping our role at Continuum Ag is to help farmers to navigate this space, bring in the data that they need to be able to, you know, optimize their scoring and make sure that the carbon is going to be there no matter how we're going to measure it and test it and, and whatnot. Um, I've done uh, pilot projects with nearly all of the companies that are, that have their uh, logos here. Um, I work with a lot of them, you know, on an ongoing basis um, and in the, in a unique spot where I've got my own farm to be able to play with. And that's how I bring in all these, these systems. Like before I take them to my customers, uh, I, I test them on my own farm first. That's that I'm in a really unique spot to be able to do that. But the main thing that I'm, you know, taking away with this is that, Farmers, I think, you know, we need to enable farmers to aggressively implement these programs and stuff and, and that a focus on the real outcome, a focus on drawing down carbon, being low carbon intensity, that needs to be the main goal. As you highlighted before, there's lots of different practices that can lead to great generating these outcomes. I really think we've got to enable farmers to be paid and be compensated based on the outcome that they generate, not just the practice that they can check a box and do the practice, which incentivizes doing the bare minimum because the payment isn't enough to really incentivize doing it to the best of your ability. It incentivizes do the bare minimum. So hopefully there's a little bit of money in your pocket at the end of the day um, because the cost of doing these things is really expensive and the cost of cover crops has gone up by about 25% since last year. You know, that's just one of the things. No, that's a really good point. I, and I feel like I feel like high quality, low cost, high fidelity uh, measurement underlies so much of that and underlies so much of the trust of a system like that for an outcomes based system as opposed to a practices based system. And the, la the last piece, the last piece of it being that 
you know, we're, we're looking here at the soil organic carbon. That's the last piece of the chain of the cycle. Right. What we try to help our farmers understand too is the leading indicators. The, I call it liquid carbon, but it's as exudates that are putting yep. that carbon down into the soil. The biological activity, the majority of, of soil organic matter and soil organic carbon, it's actually microbial necromass, microbial carcasses. Yep. And we can measure that. Those are leading indicators to these kind of things. So I try to bring in that because, you know, if we're going to look at carbon once every five or 10 years or so, we need to make sure on an annual basis that we're tracking in the right direction. We try to bring that to our growers too and uh, and do it in a manner where they can pay for it and, uh, and it can be directly cost-effective. Awesome. Thanks, Mitch. Um, so uh, moving moving forward from this measurement component, I want to, I want to talk about this sort of in the context of a project and the way in which that might look. The, the example we're going to talk about is going to be livestock. Um, and so I'll just jump to this to this next slide here. Um, and just thinking about livestock having significant um, emissions contributions in the form of enteric fermentation, manure management, and then and then in some countries, particularly uh, you know and well publicized in in the Amazon, um, issues with deforestation and land degradation due to increasing land land quantities for um, for livestock grazing. And so there's kind of two ways to think about the ways in which livestock production can be decarbonized. One is, is thinking about how do we functionally allow livestock to improve landscapes through rotational grazing, improve the health of grassland ecosystems. And the second is thinking about, okay, this enteric fermentation thing is an annoying component of ruminant systems. There's something that we can do to reduce the amount of methane that's being emitted. And that's, you know, people are thinking, trying to solve that issue through, in some cases, feed additives like, um, like red sea, red seaweed as, as an example. But I want to bring I want to bring Kevin into the conversation here. Um, given that livestock production has faced so much criticism uh, for its contribution to GHG emissions and general ecosystem uh, degradation, can you tell us a little bit about some of the work you guys are doing at Vents and how a tool like Vents can help shift that paradigm? And then beyond that, how a tool like Vents would participate in the context of some of the carbon programs we've talked about, like ESMCs or others? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So the first thing I want to say is that it is really, really early in understanding how uh, regenerative and rotational uh, grazing uh, affects the land. We know that it has positive effects on things like uh, water and soil water infiltration, biodiversity, and carbon, but exactly how much and how much that varies in different regions is still something we have to work on. Um, there are some programs that are active. Uh, and there are some really promising studies across the United States, as well as a peer-reviewed model that's being used for a variety of different carbon offset programs. Uh, but we really need more to get to that point where folks are with cropping. And I think that's important to understanding that uh, investing in a livestock-based carbon program is both a research project in some ways and a commercial one. Um, that being said, there's still plenty of benefits for farmers and ranchers interested in enrolling given the uh, how the project, how the uh, implementation of these regenerative ranching programs uh, does help with production benefits. Additionally, a lot of what people talk about with regenerative ranching is beyond cattle rotations, and that's the one that kind of gets the bulk of attention. Um, and there's kind of these lurking variables where people are talking about cattle rotations, when in reality the rancher is doing things like seeding native perennial grasses back into the land and doing really, really specific riparian buffer management and doing things like silvopasture. Um, so really being able to understand what practices uh, a rancher's doing when they talk about uh, improved grazing management and uh, better uh, regenerative ranching, uh, it, it's crucial. That being said, with vents, what we really can do is tell you uh, what exactly is going on in the land with the rancher. Um, you know, a rancher can monitor precisely where their cattle are at any given moment. Pre-planned rotations, I think up to 16 collar rotations can be pre-programmed at once. And, and that's important um, in two ways for uh, a carbon program. One is just for general uh, reporting and verification. Um, this is a really good tool to cross-reference ecological outcomes, be them in biomass, in soil organic carbon stocks, or, you know, again, biodiversity or water metrics, uh, with specifically, you know, what did the rancher do? Um, how did they move their cattle? Where were those cattle? 
um, when a certain impact happened over time. And, you know, there's also independent verification through the callers that, you know, the, mo the movements that were claimed by the program actually occurred. Uh, additionally, in the future, this is going to be really crucial um, with providing specific agronomic suggestions that can maximize uh, carbon storage potential. Once we know exactly how different movements have led to different ecological outcomes, we can optimize for that. And we can help, you know, rancher agronomists and ranchers alike uh, really plan uh, for uh, carbon storage potential. Uh, that's kind of where events is playing in, in this space, both as an MRV partner for programs. Uh, we're listed as one in, in Mexico right now, um, and also as you know a project developer, because we really want to help folks get to market. Um, and there's really a, a dearth of project developers in uh, the carbon space for grazing. And we're confident that with our technology, folks will be able to uh, you know, maximize their carbon storage potential with what they want to do now and achieve their, you know, ranch management goals. Um, but again, there's still a lot of steps to get there. And, you know, folks are taking a lot of different shots on goal. You could see this with uh, the Climate Smart Commodities programs. There's a lot of really different uh, grazing-based programs uh, doing really different kinds of management practices. Uh, like you said, feed additives, there's a couple agroforestry ones and lots of different uh, improved grazing practices one. So I'm really curious to see uh, what practices and exactly how these different approaches lead to better ecological outcomes. You know, as, as Mitch said, it's all about in the end storing carbon in the soil. It's not about prescriptive practice management. Yeah, I think that those are all really good points, Kevin. It, it um, makes me wanna, so Lars, you guys are doing some work now in rangeland mapping um, for, for carbon and also other, other soil attributes Kevin made some comments just around some of the, perhaps the evolving maturity of some of the modeling and understanding of practice change in rangeland. How are you guys experiencing that as a measurement partner in some of these emerging efforts? Yeah, there's a, I mean, for one, this is a really fascinating area for us. And I think for a lot of other folks that there's about as much grass and rangeland in the United States as there is row crop acres, both, you know, of the order of about 200 million acres. And so identifying methods that can improve soil carbon uh, storage and grass and rangeland have a you know pretty important potential impact just like they do for row crop but as, as you suggested it is much earlier days in terms of the type of measurements and long-term projects that have been conducted so we're, we're you know grateful to be involved in a lot of those different projects and are seeing early things but it's only been about a year but at least firsthand we've had, you know been able to see certain things that some of us i was completely surprised at in terms of so at least on the measurements we made, it seems very clear that aggressive overgrazing dramatically reduces soil carbon. And that makes sense because you're reducing the vegetation pretty quickly over time. No vegetation, no carbon accumulation in the soil. Um, one of the things I saw that in terms of comparing nearby grazing plots of ones that have been had routine prescribed burns for many decades and ones that had not, uh, there was a pretty significant difference in terms of there was a nearby overgrazed ranch owned by somebody else until it was bought. And it was right next to one that had had prescribed burns on and not been overgrazed for about 30 years. And there was about a 2% soil carbon difference between those two. One looked like the soil looked like coffee. The other one looked like uh, <laughs> it looked like sand that you buy at Home Depot to mix with concrete. It was you know white uh, or yellow at best. So that, that was really shocking to me that, all right, so these practices, you know, as evidenced by those kind of anecdotal pieces can really accumulate over decades. And so we're, we're starting to see some of those. Um, some of them were surprising to me. I didn't realize how important prescribed burning could indeed be. Um, but if you think about back to the you know traditional plains of the United States, we had probably more bison roaming these areas than we do cows today. Uh, so they're a key part of the whole ecosystem. And we probably had pretty routine wildfires, which is why they're plains as opposed to forests, right? That were burning these, burning probably each area on average, maybe five or so years. And so there's some natural things that we probably just need to relearn uh, that will help us out along the way. But uh, we're certainly having a lot of fun trying to make all these measurements and help uh, help folks like, you know, Mitchell and Kevin understand with the data so they can help inform, uh, you know, grazing practices and land management practices of the future. Yeah. And then, thank, thank you, Lars. And then just Debbie briefly, is this, it, when you guys think about, you know, rangeland systems versus cropping systems, is that something that you're focusing both on at ESMC, exploring these new opportunities in rangeland? How, how are you guys managing to, two systems that are pretty different in terms of the models that we have and also the, the amount of, you know, historical precedent there is for participation in programs around cropping versus rangeland? 
Yeah, we are. Um, we our first pilot actually included rangeland um, in Texas and Oklahoma, um, and what we found is there is in fact a dearth of data to populate models. Right, mm -hmm. so it is important that technologies like Earth Optics are actually out there quantifying because we don't have good baseline data. We don't have good research data to populate the model. So it's very different, you know, as Kevin explained, it's very different from the amount of data that we can draw from within um, cropland systems. Yeah. Um, uh, one additional point I'll make though. So we, we can't populate the models now without the data. So we have to have different analytics and different tools to figure out, what, figure out what's going on. And that over time will populate the models but we're starting at a much lower bar than what we did in cropland systems. But I do worry that we're focused so much on animals and the enteric methane emissions and um, manure management. We are forgetting that if we take those animals off the land, we will lose all of the benefits of those grazing lands, which are incredibly important. Kevin pointed to some of it, but just the value of those lands you can't remove the animals and expect them to remain there and be productive and be sequestering carbon. So we've got to figure out the whole cow yeah. and the <laughs> land-based uh, opportunities. Well said. Um, well, the la we have one more slide here. Um, Mitch, Mitch has put on his continuum ag hat for us today, and now he's going to put his farmer hat on for us. Um, so just to just to backtrack a little bit, we've we've covered. Um, some of the, the the issues associated with emissions sourcing from agriculture, some of the, the practices that can be done, um, a wide variety of practices, either reduce emissions or sequester emissions, the programs that are benefiting farmers in terms of, or they, they can eventually compensate farmers for these changes in practices and the outcomes, um, in addition to some of the technologies that are helping us measure um, those outcomes that are actually happening. But that being said, um, there's still, I mean, Mitch, I think you, I think you and I, when we talked on the phone, you had the actual specific statistic, but the the percentage of farmers who are enrolled in carbon programs in the U.S. is very, very small. Um, and so, obviously, there's a lot of momentum coming out of some of the USDA grants, et cetera. Um, we need to keep building on that kind of momentum. So, even with these opportunities around credits, you know, you could get compensated, soil health, you know, there's sort of in, there's sort of an inherent benefit to participating, and then potentially selling your products at a premium because they're grown a certain way. Talk to us a little bit about what the main challenge that still remain that keep people, keep farmers and producers saying, I don't know, like, is this really going to benefit me? Is it really going to, am I really going to profit from in the long run? Um, am I going to be supported? Is it going to be a pain to work with? Talk through some of those issues that you've seen yeah. yourself and the, the farmers in your network. Yeah, perfect. The The main thing in working with these carbon initiatives is the main thing that, carbon, that farmers need is transparency around how do I get paid, what moves the needle, what do I need to do to really optimize the dollars that I'm going to get? And then what's the flexibility going to look like if the value of these things increases? Uh, the data you're referring to was put together by Farm Journal. 93% of US's far US farmers are aware of carbon markets and less than 3% are pursuing and enrolling in one. Um, you know, and I've never been paid for carbon. Um, now, most of my farmers, um, you know, are early adopters in this, they don't qualify because of the definition of additionality being a one-time practice change. Um, we need to obviously redefine that for agriculture. That's our footprints can be different every year. Um, new farmers come to the table are saying, hey, help me to establish a baseline. Help me to start making practice changes because I see that these regen practices are better. And I fully believe that they are better. And farmers will come to the table because farming in a, in a regenerative system is more profitable it is more resilient. It is better for the family farm. So they will come eventually. Um, I hope that these programs can be there to enable them to really have success in doing that. But the main thing that I want to leave the group with is that today, you know, we need to be able to quantify the carbon footprint of our farms. And that's really what I'm after. And if anybody can help me do it, um, I really want to be able to get to that point. And, and doing doing projects with a bunch of the groups we've talked about here. The, there's a standard today for the carbon footprint of corn that's going into scope three reporting. And I know one farmer who's ran his actual numbers, his actual carbon impact or GHG impact per bushel or per acre. That's what I want to get to and show farmers, here's all these data that you're tracking on your farm, which we can help them to do it and make it cost effective, track everything that happens and put a carbon intensity number to it. And show farmers, here's where you're at today. 
here's the opportunity for you to improve. And as you improve, maybe we can deploy mitigation and offset, you know, mitigation units as they are reducing that supply chain carbon intensity and ultimately need to get farmers to a carbon neutral or even a carbon negative outcome where, you know, that scope three impact can already be carbon negative or carbon neutral um, and not necessarily need other uh, avenues to be able to offset that. I believe there we can incentivize those growers that are able to show that data and are able to show that they're already carbon neutral. They can be earning premiums. Those premiums go away with basic supply and demand over time. Um, and, uh, and we're able to utilize today's market drivers to get this to be paid for, to compensate farmers, to document their carbon impact, to optimize their carbon intensity for their farm using whatever practices are best for them. And we can enable those farmers to understand the pros and cons of changing those practices the financial impact of those practice changes versus the financial compensation for the carbon intensity outcome. Um, I see a lot of farmers ready. They're ready to come to the table. They know that they're going to have to go this route. The main thing we need is, is showing transparency within the calculations. We will help them to bring the data to the table to most accurately run uh, those calculations. That's that it's, I mean, it's, it sounds like, you know, the, the sort of knowledge gap in the agronomy support is a big deal. You mentioned that you mentioned that previously. And then um, that was my main takeaway from the yeah. kind of small commodity grants is I love paying farmers for practices, but there's a lot of there's money out there and only 4% of farmers in 2017. Anyway, 4% of farmers using cover crops and about 30% using no-till. This stuff is hard. And the, yeah. the knowledge does not exist at the universities. It doesn't exist within USDA and, and in the private sector too, or farmer to farmer learning. It's tough. To be able to really teach it, I'm really trying to scale that. I definitely don't have all the answers, but really seeing, hey, this stuff can work, and and but it is nuanced to every single farm, and uh, the understanding of how do I do this, that really is the ultimate gap. And yeah. and to the point of all this, we're doing these things and making it work, and we're more profitable than we've ever been on our family farm with zero taxpayer federal subsidies, without the need for federal crop insurance, and with no environmental outcome payment. Now I've, you know, my solar organic carbon has been built up uh, by the rate of up to 4.9 tons of solar organic carbon per acre per year over the last couple of years. And I'm not able to, to accurately, you know, communicate that into the supply chain. That's what I want to be able to do, but the practices on their own can pay for themselves. We just need to be able to come together and show growers, here's the data that you can help us so we can all meet our goals and we'll compensate you for the more that you do. Um, and enable that farmer innovation to drive this thing. That's the most important thing in, in agriculture yep. is farmer innovation. And we need to really leverage that. Thanks, Mitch. Debbie, I'm curious to know if you have a perspective here on some of the some of the comments that Mitch made around sort of the knowledge, the knowledge gap and in, in helping with the transition, but also the additionality issue and how you guys are thinking about that for finding ways to compensate farmers who've already made transitions that are that are beneficial. Yeah, I so I think Mitch was dead on in his comments, right, about not only opportunities, but challenges and barriers. And knowledge is um, truly needed. Farmers and ranchers, right, they don't have a lot of time to play to get a crop into the ground and take on the new practices. So knowledge information is important. Additionality is important for market programs, right, because you're selling something, it has to be new. It's like, selling a corn crop if there's no corn there, right? So right. additionality is important. However, its interpretation for biological agricultural systems, I think is being misapplied and we need to rethink that. A cover crop is costly and new every year, right? So right. Um, there's some, some simple fixes that are pragmatic really need to be applied to the lens of agriculture. Awesome, thanks Debbie. Well, I know we're, we're a little bit over time here. Um, if anybody has to drop off, um, I totally understand. We do have some questions from the audience. Um, and, and now if you do, if you have further questions that haven't already been asked of our speakers, um, feel free to type them in the Q&A box. Um, I will filter through some of these um, at, at fall once I'm done talking um, and um, answer them in the order that they're received. It is very helpful if you can um, state who you would like to ask your question to and make sure your question is well articulated. It is hard to read um, sort of half sentences as questions, and I probably won't read them if they're if they're written as such. Um, but the uh, the first question um, is for Debbie, which is around the 
understanding of the value of a carbon offset versus a carbon inset. Um, there's a statement made, um, offsets have value um, as they can be bought and sold. They have market value. How, how do you establish the value of an inset? Um, the company that makes the change must understand their cost to create an inset versus the cost to buy in an offset. Um, so I guess, does that, does that make sense, Debbie? It does, it does. And um, I'll answer this way. Carbon offset markets are global. So you see global price signals and global valuation. It's a little bit different. You see higher prices in Europe, for instance, in the United States, but they tend to be global and you see the pricing. Um, the insets or the supply chain reporting, it is different in individual. What we've done, and I think everyone's handling it differently, is we've just put a price, $15 a ton for carbon, right? And um, then now we're really experimenting with how do we hit that sweet spot? I talked about how we allow members to co-invest to bring that down and then create dividends for producers. But there's um, when we start to see a market program and supply chains for insets, et cetera, come online, we will start to see some of that pricing being uh, more transparent. And I think you will begin to see price discovery happening differently and being reported and more transparent differently than it is now. Gotcha. Thanks, Debbie. Um, yeah. yeah, I got a, a follow-up question, Debbie. Um, with, with some of the insetting, um, do you see any, any ability to utilize the increased um, dollar value in 45Q um, to be able to enable some of that 45Q, you know, with the Inflation Reduction Act going from $50 a ton to $85 a ton, do you think that can enable some of the push towards insetting and, and, or can we even, I know today we can't necessarily use scope three reporting for that, but do you yeah. think that's a, an opportunity to enable this to, to go further? Well, biologicals currently don't count under 45Q, and there was a long shit fight. Literally <laughs> <laughs> going back 15 years to try to get that in. I don't foresee it being included in the future. It doesn't currently count. So that mechanism, however, could be deployed separately in a different policy, but there isn't currently one like that. I wish, I wish, right? Um, Debbie, another, another question from the audience, I think. Uh, I think it's directed toward you, but it open to others as well. Um, is how how do you attribute the scope three benefits across multiple parties? And I think you spoke to that a little bit earlier, but maybe just clarifying that. Yeah, and I'll give you one example to make it a little more concrete. And I will say we don't do this, right? SustainCert has set up a platform that does track this. But I will give you an example. If we are working with a partner, let's say Cargill. Uh, that is purchasing beef from a, one of our livestock projects, and we show an improved emission factor, you know, intensity-based emission factor for that beef. Cargill buys that, they process it, they sell some of it to McDonald's and some of it to Target, right? All of those three companies can share in that emission factor because it's the same product that receive that emission factor from improvements in soil carbon and greenhouse gas emission reductions, they can share that as long as it's the same project or product, right? So SustainCert's platform will track that and allocate it as beef goes to one player and the hide goes to another in a way that we can't do. We just create the emission factor for that first product at the point of sale, and then they track it but we can help with the resale. And I hope that makes sense, but it's a complicated system um, to really unravel how commodities are actually bought and sold and broken down over the supply chain. Yep, thanks Debbie. Um, question for anybody from anybody on the panel, um, based on what happened with the Chicago Climate Exchange in the early 2000s, is a voluntary carbon market a viable model versus a regulator, regulated or mandatory model? I've got I've got opinions on that, but um, I, I think the way that we're unfolding the voluntary carbon markets are probably the appropriate way. It, it, it's very similar to I think the way that the organic markets evolved uh, around a similar time frame in terms of it was kind of the wild west for a while. You had groups of growers and food food companies uh, either individually or as target groups cr creating their own standard for what organic meant to them, uh, and then that went on for almost over a decade. The USDA spent long and careful time analyzing what was happening and then slowly and very meticulously rolled out standards for what what you had to do to claim something as organic in every single food category and i think 
that that's what's happening in the voluntary carbon markets where the USA is very carefully watching the, the marketplace unfold. And eventually they'll start probably applying standards, maybe first around quantification requirements and standards to what is a ton? What do you have to do to say this is a ton in some right. of the various areas? Uh, but I think they're years away from that. So I think they're taking the right approach. Uh, and I think it'll all work out great in the end. I think the other thing I would add is that, you know, the Chicago Climate Exchange was an awesome pilot effort to see how, in fact, we include agriculture in a carbon offset market program. Um, it had no additionality. And that is really what created its downfall is it didn't meet the actual market requirements. Mm. It was not because it was voluntary. There was zero additionality. They were signing up farmers to do things they were already doing. And when buyers discovered that, they were like, uh oh, we paid for something that was going to happen anyway. So that is why additionality as a concept is important. I still disagree with how it's being applied to agriculture. Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, yeah, it's that's interesting in historical context. Yeah, just one quick add-on right now is you know, internationally there's this group called the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets that just released really specific guidance. Um, you know, I've heard folks talk about the ICBCM as being the new law of the land for offsets. And it has really strict uh, additionality policies that don't necessarily align with what's out there with the different standards. So, you know, Debbie talked about the need to really have a clear, you know, understanding of what additionality means in agricultural settings. And that's something to really keep an eye on. I really hope that we can develop some sort of probability of practice model. You know, what was the probability that an XYZ year, uh, a farmer would be incentive without carbon to do cover cropping or to do rotational grazing and establish that infrastructure? You know, what is that IRR? And, and, you know, that's more of an economics question than an agronomic one in some ways. Um, but I think we really need that for uh, agricultural carbon markets to scale uh, globally. Thanks, Kevin. Um, I think given where we are from a timing perspective, we're going to wrap things up. Um, so I first and foremost want to thank our panel today, um, Kevin, Mitchell, uh, Debbie, and Lars. Really appreciate all of your thoughts, input um, into planning this presentation, but also um, into all the insights that you shared with us today. Um, they got a lot of comments in the Q&A just saying thank you so much for such an informative um, discussion. So thank you guys for, for, your, for, your, uh, for your input. Um, thank you to the audience for your thoughtful questions and for, for your participation today. Um, if you want to view this in recording, this will be available on YouTube in the next week. Uh, I'm also happy to distribute the, um, the PDF to anybody who's curious and, and wants to have either access to the slides um, or to the links that I got um, information from for those slides. Um, otherwise, thank you all so much for your time today, and we look forward to seeing you on our next deep dive. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks all. Everyone.